0: Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you, please, to open them to Revelation chapter 21. We're uh, finishing up in the book of Revelation and uh, are taking our time going through this last chapter, this last section, passage, and, and we'll be continuing... In verses 21:9 to 22:5, which is the picture of the New Jerusalem. And as you're turning there, um, I just want to recap previous weeks. So uh, we began three weeks ago by reminding ourselves that this is not a, a literal city, but is a symbolic picture of the Bride of Christ, the Bride of Christ in the heavenly world, the world to come, the new heavens and the new earth. And there were 12 points I wanted us to see in this passage, at least in chapter 21. And then there's a summary in the first five verses of chapter 22. But the first six having to do with God's love for his bride, his love for us. Number one, the city comes down from God, reminding us that everything we have has been given graciously as a gift. Secondly, as a son, reflects, uh, or as the moon reflects the light of the sun, the city reflects the radiance of God, reminding us that we will be made perfectly righteous in that place, and we will be reflecting His image flawlessly, and best of all, we will be satisfied with what He makes us. Thirdly, everything will be beautiful in that place, and, and God will not allow anything to be made that is not pleasing in our sight. Everything will be good. And for as the city is composed of precious jewels and stones and earthly treasures, so the church is God's treasured possession. In the Scriptures, we are called the apple of God's eye. We are called His treasured possession. And so we learn He doesn't just take us as His own, but takes us as His treasure and writes our names in the storehouse of His love. Five. As the walls are made for protection, it reminds us of our safety. The safety that we have in Christ. Our security eternally in Him. No one will ever be afraid. Afraid of falling away. No one will be afraid of being drawn off. I know that's a fear that people sometimes have. How do I know I'm going to make it? Everyone is going to make it. And in that place, no fear of loss. Six, as the gates and the foundations are named after the tribes and apostles, tribes of Israel and apostles of Christ, so all of God's people from all over the world will be one in Christ. There'll be no division there, no strife, but all people who have put their hope and trust in God from all time will be perfectly unified. Next, in points 7 through 10, we saw the nature of the city, beginning with the stones in the foundation of the walls. They serve to remind us of the intercessory work of the high priest in Exodus. Work that was fulfilled by the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how His atonement enables us to walk with God again. We saw next that the city comes down as a cube. Now, of course, it reminds us of another important cube in Scripture, the Holy of Holies. The place where God, God's presence dwells. And He's reminding us here, or maybe not reminding us, but revealing to us, showing us, telling us that one day we will dwell with Him in a fuller and a nearer way than we could ever have imagined in this world. He will fill all things and we will walk and move and live in Him and do so unafraid. And because the whole universe will be made a temple of the Lord, everything we do, from singing praise to Painting a, a portrait will be pure and undefiled worship. All of life will be perfect worship to the Lord God. Ten, there will be no sun or moon, but God and the Lamb will be our light. There will be no darkness of the soul in that place, no weariness, no wondering where God has gone. We will have full and consistent and constant awareness of the joy and the light of His countenance upon us. You can summarize all of it in these words. They shall be My people, and I shall be their God. We will experience the fullness of what that means. Well, this morning we come to points 11 and 12. These points show us how we will be towards one another. Maybe you've never thought of that. Maybe it's never crossed your mind before. Yes, I'll I'll be perfect in that heavenly place. There'll be no sin, no sickness, nothing that could harm me. I'll know God. I'll see God. But what will it be like to live with other people? What will humanity be like in this wonderful place that God is preparing for us? What will society look like and how will we interact with one another? What would it be like to live in a world filled with perfect people? That's our aim this morning. So... Pay particular attention to verses 24 through 27 as we read through this passage because we're going to be directing our attention to verses 24 through 27. But starting in Revelation chapter 21, verse 9, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the 12 gates, 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east gate, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and its width and its height are equal. He also measured its wall. 144 cubits by a human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper with the city, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jathens, the twelve amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life." Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank You for where You're taking us. Thank You for what You have prepared for those who have put their hope and trust in You. No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor mind imagined the glorious place where we are going that you have prepared for those who love you. Thank you, God. It will make the greatest triumphs of this life, Lord, look pitiful. And the greatest trials of this life, nothing by comparison. Lord, help us to see what awaits us. Help us to to live and 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 grab hold of by faith the inheritance You have in store. Lord, an inheritance that makes all the things of this world look dim. And to the degree, Lord, that we fix our hope there, to that same degree, Lord, this world and its ways will pass away for us. I pray, Lord, You would use this morning to make... The difficulties of this world small in the hearts of Your people. And light to not weigh them down. And that the hope of the life to come will be greater and greater. So that, Lord, we will not lose heart. Not be discouraged. But joyfully and confidently and hopefully cling to Your promise of immeasurable grace and riches and glory. And so it's to You we look, Lord. Some people here have heavy hearts. I pray that they would be lightened today. Some people here are fearful of the future. I pray, Lord, You would give them the ability to see further so that the future would fill them with great confidence. That hearts would be unburdened. And people would be set free, Lord, from fear in the world today. We ask this in Your name because You alone are able to do this, God. To really do it with the true hope. It's in Your name we pray. I pray for all of us. I pray that You would help me to preach, Lord, apart from You I can do nothing. And nothing will be done apart from You. And so we take our time We take I take my words, we take our hearts, and we lay them before you this morning, Lord. Do the work that you know needs to be done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What is the most difficult passage in the Bible for you to understand? And when I ask that, what I mean is, is there anywhere in the Bible, and when you read it, it just leaves you scratching your head? You don't even know where to begin. Um, and for some of you, that passage is number 7. In number 7, it's just the same thing repeated 12 times, and it's a very monotonous, difficult chapter to get through. And for others of you, uh, it's maybe somewhere in Numbers or Exodus or Leviticus or Deuteronomy. Somewhere in there. And some of you, like me, uh, when the first time I read through the Bible, once you get to the prophets, you just don't know where you're going until you get to Matthew. I remember I remember on a train ride I took, uh, I read the book of Jeremiah, and when I finished, just before reaching the destination, so six hours in the book of Jeremiah, read it from from the start to the end, and when I got to where I was, I set the book down, and I remember distinctly feeling like somehow I understood the Bible less. <laughs> well, I've come a long way since then, by God's grace, but, uh, but the one passage that I admit I, I have a difficult time understanding is in Ezekiel, And it's chapters 40 through 48. It's a description of a temple. A temple that hasn't been built. And it's a challenge for me to wrap my head around. And and I wrestle with it often. Um, But there are a few things in those eight chapters that I do understand. And one is that this temple, the New Jerusalem, is a description of the church. It's another one of those very symbolic passages. and, And what those symbolic... Uh, what those symbols mean, I don't know. But uh, I do know this. It's not a literal temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. It's a symbolic description of the church in the world today. You see, God already has a third temple. And it's not built on a mount next to a mosque with a shiny gold roof. The New Testament makes this clear. The third temple is the church. The body of Christ And it's meeting together right now. And when you disperse after this morning, the temple goes with you. Because we are the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. And that's what this description in Ezekiel is. That's the big idea. It's of the church in the world. We are the dwelling place of the Lord today. And those who are beloved by the Lord, and those who He dwells with, we are those who are a kingdom of priests, and all of that is true. But at the same time, we also and often fall very short of being what we are called to be. And so it's fitting then when you read about this temple, it has an altar. It speaks of sacrifice. Not something that will be established as a memorial in the future, but it's a a reminder to us of our continual need for forgiveness and atonement. We still sin. And when we sin, Uh, we need to be forgiven. You see, we will sin until He calls us home. And when we do sin, we need, like John 13 says, you remember, we need to have our feet washed. Peter says, don't wash me. Jesus says, you are, all of you, totally clean. What's that mean? Forgiven on your way to heaven, but you need your feet washed. We need to have our feet washed. We need to go to the Lord always for constant renewals of our forgiveness we need to confess our sin and have their blot washed away we still sin against God and we still sin against each other and need to be reminded that those sins are covered that's us today but this new Jerusalem coming down from heaven that is a glimpse of what we will become and there is no altar here No altar in this world-filling temple. Why? Well, the answer is obvious, isn't it? It's because in this place there will be no sin. It will be a fitting dwelling for God and for man. And in order for that to happen... The people must be clean and morally pure and spotless and sinless. That's why there is no altar because there will never be anything done again that needs to be atoned for. And these verses, it give just a glimpse, a bare glimpse of what it will be like to live in that perfect place, of what it will be like to dwell together in a society perfected in love and righteousness, constantly living and moving and having our being in the immediate presence of God. One thing we can be sure of, there will be no animosity there between the nations any longer. There will be no nationalism or racism or partiality in that place. And we see that in verses 24 through 26. The nations will give Him glory. Now this is not Gentile kings coming to pay homage to the Lord in this new city. It can't be because There is nothing outside of this city, and it's not a a city anyway. It's a symbol of the people of God in the new creation, and that includes the Gentiles. They're a part of the city. So what does it mean when it says the nations or the Gentiles will bring their glory into the city? Obviously, the people will all give Him glory, but there's more going on here than just that. The point is, God is glorified in the diversity of the nations that are united in His church. It starts now and it's completed then. You know, in the Scriptures, not all judgments are the same. Some judgments that God pours out on humanity have far greater a far greater impact on the world than others. Now certainly, the curse on our first parents, Adam and Eve, affected us the most and the flood has had lasting implications as well, but one of the judgments of God that you might not think about that has has had a tremendous bearing on the course of human history, maybe even more than the flood, and that's a judgment that came at the Tower of Babel. There, mankind was divided into languages and the people were dispersed throughout the world. But listen to this. The dispersion was not... A judgment. The dispersion was what God commanded them to do earlier, right? Multiply and fill the earth. He told them to go and fill the earth, not to stay all together, and they didn't do it. In fact, when you're reading in um, Genesis uh, 10 and 11 about the Tower of Babel, They specifically say, let us build this big tower so that we will not be spread out over all of the face of the earth, but we'll be able to stay here together A direct defiance of what God commanded them to do. That's the sin at the Tower of Babel. They were told to go and fill the earth. They say, no, we're all going to stay here. And so God responds. And He makes them go and fill the earth by confusing their languages. He forces them to go and fill the earth by putting a division between them that separates them. And one of the results of this judgment, and in fact one of the goals of the command in the first place, was to create a variety of cultures and peoples and everything that makes up those cultures and peoples. The food, the dress, the music, artistic style, those kinds of things. The world was to be filled with people, but people who were and are different from each other. That was God's original design. And All of these people, by their variety, they give glory to God. And in this new universe to come, we will see this fulfilled. And even though those things that that divide people, they'll be broken forever, there'll be no animosity between peoples, we probably all will have the same language, able to communicate, or we'll know all the languages, we'll share a, a monolithic holiness, everyone will be holy, everyone will have the same religion, but we will all be brothers and sisters in Christ. Not in a way that's often used today. It will actually be true. We all will be one in Christ. And yet at the same time, we will not all be the same. We'll be very different. And this this is not as difficult to grasp as it might seem. In fact, of almost all of the future blessings, this one is the most discernible today. So what do you mean? Well, if you were to go to Brazil or China or the Middle East or Africa or a country in Europe or even somewhere else in North America and you join some believers there, you will see many differences between you and them. You you will. And there will be different priorities, different recreations, different ways to dress, different food at the potluck. They'll probably have a different name for that. The songs won't be what you're used to. There'll be all kinds of different traditions, all kinds of things. And you will be able to enjoy them all because the most important matters are settled. The doctrinal matters are today mostly agreed on, then perfectly agreed on. But all of those differences become nothing compared to the unity you have in Christ. You are one with these brothers and sisters even today. And for that reason, these cultural differences aren't divisive but are magnificent displays of the creativity of God at work in man. Uh, Apart from this, all you can have are are people arguing about which way of life is better. And in this heavenly world, when all of those differences are elevated and sanctified and celebrated, they will each give glory to God in a particular way. And you think, well, will God really do that? Really, it's going to be all kinds of... I thought we're all going to be one well look, how many kind of kinds of stars did God make? One type would have done the trick, but there are at least eight common types of stars and, and many more rare ones. And how many different kinds of trees are there? One hardwood, one softwood, that would have done the trick. But God has designed thousands and landscapes on the earth you have mountains and plains and three or four different kinds of forests I I mean creation itself take a look at creation and one of the things it teaches us about God is that God delights in diversity he didn't have to do it that way but he did and it was good and it pleases him and in the world to come it won't be less but much more I mean what would it be like to go to a garden made up of only one kind of plant one kind of flower just one Well, it wouldn't take away from that flower's beauty. But you could hardly call it a garden, right? That's not what makes a garden beautiful. It's not what makes a garden attractive. Would it really even constitute a garden? But just as a garden is magnified by the variety of plants within it, God is glorified through the diversity of the nations and the peoples. This is the polar opposite of racism, isn't it? You know why racism is a sin? And, and listen, I don't mean racism in the way it's used in the world today in terms of power economics. That's not what I'm talking about, and I think most of you know that, but if you don't, I'm not talking about racism as defined by academia and the media. I'm talking about real racism that's defined by prejudice and feelings of superiority. I'm talking about people who, are, who think they are superior because of the color of their skin or the culture they inherited. It's ironic in the the idea of racism in the world today actually promotes racism in the world today. And it's sinful. It's an evil thing. Do you know why it's such a grievous sin? It's a grievous sin, racism, because it says, I and those who look like me are the epitome and perfect example of what God had in mind when he made human beings. And if you say that, what's implied is that God made all other human beings lacking. And you don't have to be majority or minority to think this way. You can just be one person uh, surrounded by people from another country and think, oh, my ways are better. My people are better. Oh, well, maybe in some ways they are, but certainly not always. Or you can be in the majority and look at that one person who's not from uh, around there. Maybe they moved here and think, oh, what a strange person or whatever it is. Whatever thoughts you want to have. Well, do you know what both of those attitudes are called? They're called sinful. It's saying, I like me and my ways best, therefore everyone should be like me. Everyone should be made in my image. Well, in heaven, everyone is not going to be like you. God gains glory through diversity. And God does it this way because there is no single human being or culture that could capture the glory of God. It takes all of it. Now, today, people and cultures are not inherently better or worse. They are unique and diverse, and they give glory to God. But also, I'm going to be careful. With this because I don't want to be misunderstood. But also, here on earth, those cultures are shot through with sin and certain sins affect certain groups more than others, and certain cultures are infected with different sins that are maybe not so prominent in others. Every group of people, it just doesn't matter how you grow up, you'll have blind spots to certain sins that you inherited. Cultures are sinful because they are made up of people who are sinful. Does that mean here on earth they're all the same? No. And not because some are better than others, but because some have been refined by the light of the Word of God and it's guided them for hundreds or thousands of years. This is a no-brainer, really. Just think about this for a second. A culture that values the Bible and builds itself on biblical principle, is that going to be better to live in than a culture that totally disregards the Bible and builds itself on animism or secular humanism? Well, in the New Jerusalem, every culture will be refined to perfection without a single impurity. And that sin which infects every nation and every group of people and every individual, it will be gone forever. And everything that is tradition, songs, accents, food, dress, all of it, it will give glory to God. That's point 11. Point 12 single verse, verse 27. And it's this. The city is pure. And nothing unclean will ever enter into it. Nothing. Now, you could preach this passage as a warning, couldn't you? You get to the very end. Nothing unpure or unclean will ever enter, you better make sure that you're clean. One of the One of the things when you're reading Scripture is you want to understand the context, obviously. And the context will give you a good idea of how you should interpret a verse. And you always want to match the mood of the verse. If it's a very encouraging passage, and then you have a verse like this in there, probably not the best way to interpret is is by saying you you get here at the end and, and so you guys better be careful to make sure that you're clean and pure that's not what's guys like uh like psalm 23 the lord is my shepherd i shall not want he leads me beside still water are you wandering away from his you know what i mean there is nothing pure and unclean is here in order to encourage the saints it's not a warning to say watch out in yourself that you're pure and not unclean. It's you are going to a place where there is nothing that will defile ever again. That's the point. And so what we have here at the end of chapter 21 is a is a uh, an announcement that the battle is over. The struggle has ceased, and not because you've been defeated, but because the enemies of your soul, they've been they've been subdued. They've been cast into a lake of fire from which they will never escape. And so in this place, nothing defiles. There are no liars. There are no tricksters. There's no perverts. There's no temptations. Nothing. And the reason it can't enter into the city is not because the walls are high and strong and and it's got good gates and good guards. It's because they no longer exist in that holy place. It's not annihilated. But nothing unclean will ever escape its hellish confines in the lake of fire, ever. No one will ever do anything that is detestable or false, and your hearts will be purified perfectly so that you can finally love your neighbor as yourself truly and wholly. And you say, what will that be like? Probably one of the best descriptions I ever heard of what this heavenly world will be like, it... uh It wasn't from books about kids who died and came back. It came from the pen of of an 18th century pastor and theologian, Jonathan Edwards. And it wasn't from a book written on Revelation. Actually, it's not from any passage about the end times and the world to come. It's from his work called Charity and Its Fruits. It's just where he, he works through in this book what love really means and really requires. What does Christian love look like? What What is it? And then what does it look like? And then he gets to the end of the book. It's a series of sermons. And he gets to the last sermon on the subject. And he goes to First Corinthians 13. And from there, he begins to paint heaven. Not as streets of gold or as some fantastical place, but as a a world, or he calls it a, a universe, a world of love. You see, in this life, in this life, There are people that you admire. They're hardworking. They're easy to get along with. They care a great deal about you. They've accomplished something incredible and you, you look up to them. And yet, always, despite how admirable they are, they are still sinful men and women. They eventually will disappoint you. Charles Spurgeon said, the best of men are still only men at their best. Now some of you understand this intellectually, but others of you, you've experienced this, haven't you? And you know a person with many virtuous characteristics and you hold them in high regard, but then either as time goes by or or maybe suddenly as something is exposed, that reputation gets tarnished. You, you can't believe it. And you're not angry, you're not even really sad, you're just disappointed the kind of disappointment when you have a a a precious heirloom that you accidentally drop and it breaks happens to everyone with time eventually if you put your trust in a person they will let you down they will every married couple there are things you discovered about your spouse that disappointed you that's just that's just the course of marriage And if you haven't discovered them yet, you will. But Christ will never disappoint you. He will never let you down. And you think about it. Look at, look at the Lord Jesus Christ from every angle. You know, plumb the depths of His being and uncover every secret, every hidden thing, and instead of disappointment, you know what will happen? You will only grow in your admiration of Him. He stands head and shoulders above the very best men, light years above them. But in this world to come, you say, okay, where are we going? In this world to come, guess what? We will be like Him. And there will be no disappointing people because everyone will be perfectly pure. There'll never be a secret that could surprise you or derail your thoughts of another human being. No skeletons in the closet. What you see is what they are, and what they are never changes or tarnishes. No trust or admiration will ever be misplaced. And in that heavenly place, love will reign in and over every human heart. Love as defined by 1 Corinthians 13 will be true for all of us fully and forever. Never again will someone's patience... Love is what? Patient. Never again will someone's patience be exhausted. I mean, how many times, Mom and Dad, have you lamented for your lack of patience? And you know that most of the problems in your house, strife and arguments and hurt feelings, they happen because we fail to be patient and kind and gentle and merciful. Well, can you imagine living in a world... Where you no longer even have the ability to lose your patience or be unkind. I mean, that's, that's what we're talking about here. It's not like today where, you know, you're fighting against sin and, and, and you've got these, these temptations coming up and you have to push them down and it's a, it's a battle. There you won't even have the capacity to be impatient. You will be unable to do anything except what is gentle and kind. What kind of world will this be? And men and women will be extremely ambitious there. Much more ambitious than they are here. But their ambition will be to do kindness to each other and and treat them as better than themselves. Selfishness will be so foreign to the hearts of men and women there will hardly believe that we used to harbor it. We will know nothing but pouring out ourselves joyfully for the good of others. And as for envy, envy will be impossible in a world where everyone is perfectly content. In in fact, you will be more joyful when a stranger is blessed than you are. Resentment and bitterness will have no place in your heart. Not not because there won't be anything to provoke them. I'm convinced many of the the things that anger irritate you today, they'll still exist. The difference will be in you more than them. You say, what do you mean? Listen, if you're working on something and maybe you've got a nut in a tight place and you drop it and it falls down into a place where you can't reach and you get irritated and you get frustrated, that's not sinful to drop it down there, but it is sinful to rail and rage about it. But love will override all bitterness. And in your heart and the heart of everyone you know, they will be so completely filled with love, there will be no room for any anything resentful, even if there are things that would today cause it. Not only that, we will all be sincerely united together in Christ. What do you mean by that? There will not be a single open or secret enemy among us. There will not be a single inhabitant of that holy place who is not perfectly loved by everybody else. All will be loved and will be loved with fullness and delight. Nobody will be isolated. Nobody will be left out. No one will not be perfectly cared for and perfectly caring for others. And we all will be thoroughly known by God and by one another. I mean, have you ever felt like nobody knows you? And I don't mean in the you know an angsty teenager way, but really, nobody knows you. I mean, people are hard to know. It's hard to really get to know someone. We barely know ourselves. The only relationship that even comes close to that in this life is, is the kind of intimate knowledge that is brought in the bonds of marriage. Husbands and wives know each other deeply and fully and comprehensively. But that takes a lot of effort. And it's impossible to do that with more than one or two people. In this life at least. But in the life to come, in this new heavenly world, everyone will be perfectly known by one another. And even though that might be a frightening thought today, it won't be there because there will be no closets in your soul. You just want to keep shut. You will lay your heart bare without fear. It's like Adam and Eve. It says they were naked and unashamed. And yes, not everyone will be the same. Some will rule ten cities and some will rule... For some will lead and others will follow. But those who follow will suffer no reduction in their own happiness, far from it. Their hearts will be so perfectly filled with love that the only thing that they will be able to do, the only thing you will be able to do, is the only thing you will be capable of. Capable of. When you see another person exalted higher than yourself, is to rejoice with all of your heart in the great position that your beloved neighbor has attained. And you will find more joy in the elevation of your friend than you were, uh, would find if you were to be the one lifted up. That's the result of love reigning in the heart. And this perfect love will always be mutual. It's always reciprocal. Never will you give your affections in vain. They will be perfectly received and proportionately returned. And you nor anyone else will ever be troubled by the thought that your love is not appreciated. You will never be grieved by having poured it out futilely. And all of the desires you have to be loved will never fail to be satisfied. There will be no deception. Everyone will be exactly what they appear to be. Every word will carry the weight of full earnestness. No lies will be told, not even on accident and no word will ever be spoken that will not be understood and undertaken. No hollow compliments. No, everything will be as it appears. Every expression of love will come earnestly and from the heart. And it will come in such a way that you just can't deny it. Right? All that is spoken will be genuinely and truly felt by the recipient. I mean, has, ever, has anyone ever told you that they loved you and you had your doubts And maybe it's partially true, but you're not convinced that they love you as much as they think they do. In this place, not only will they mean it, but it will find its expression in a way that not only will every doubt to its authenticity be dispelled, but you will feel the weight of it. You will know that you are loved. In this place, there will be no half-hearted work, or half-hearted measures. There'll be nothing to hinder you in your commitment, nothing to hinder you in your ability, nothing to hinder you in your focus. Here in this world, love is a hard thing to do. Our hearts are heavy. Our affections are often dull. Jonathan Edwards says at this point, we have a heavy molded body, a clod of earth, a mass of flesh and blood that is not fitted to be the organ for a soul inflamed with high exercises of divine love. So it says this body, just, just to what we're called to, if it's here, the body can only go this high. We cannot express our love to God or to anybody else in the way that we desire. Here we are held back by the limitations of our flesh, but not so in the life to come. There will have no such hindrances. There'll be no dullness of heart, no weariness, and nothing to hinder at all our love. Here our, our hearts burn like a fire restrained in a stove, but there will be, it will be at full liberty not to consume, <clears throat> but to shine and grow and burn without hindrance. And we will carry ourselves with perfect decency and perfect wisdom. How often have you desired to do something Good. You wanted to do something for somebody else. And your heart could not have been more sincere. You you had to find an expression to to get out and to show what was pent up in your heart. And when you did, it backfired. Or at least it didn't have the desired effect. Has that ever happened to anybody? Must be just me. You put your foot in your mouth. You embarrass yourself you embarrass the one you hope to do good to you you said something you shouldn't have you've done something that in hindsight you shouldn't have done i mean we have an endless uh, array of ways to humiliate one another even infuriate one another despite of our despite our good intentions but in that place there is no concern of humiliation because we will all possess perfect discretion so that we can give perfect expression to our desire to love one another You will never be unwise, nor will you ever meet a person who is unwise. No fools in this city. You will never say the wrong thing to another person, nor will they ever say anything that is wrong to you. There will never be another misunderstanding. And you always say, imagine how often and how many difficulties we get into because of miscommunication. Well, in that place, you will always say what you mean clearly, and it will always be understood the same. I mean, what kind of world will this be? Everyone communicating with perfect clarity and perfect reception. I mean, we could go on and on and on, couldn't we? Just, if you want to go on and on and on, go and read Charity and Its Fruits, go to the last chapter, and then when you read it, stop and actually think about the implications. Or or go to 1 Corinthians 13 and just spend some time meditating on what a world would be like if love really did reign. But let me give one last point about this world of love, one that is obvious, but it's worth pointing out. It's never going to end. It will continue uninterrupted forever. You know, I used to direct Bible camps and campers and staff, a lot of them often dreaded going home. And they would they would tell us why, and, and there were many different reasons. Who, who knows what they were actually going back to. And they would look forward to camp, sometimes all year long, And though the joy and the love they experienced at camp, it was real, it was a tremendous relief for them. All of it was overshadowed with the knowledge it couldn't last forever. Right? It was coming to an end. You read this in our poets, nothing gold can stay. And no matter how pure or precious a moment is in this cursed world, it will often and often quickly expire. But in the world to come, there is no expiration date. You will continue forever in the perfect enjoyment of divine love reigning over every human heart. Again, Edwards, he says, it will be like a never-ending stream, always flowing as a perpetual spring. You ever have spring, a spring run dry? Never going to run dry. There'll be no heat of summer, no death of autumn, no chill of winter, no frost shall stop it up, no leaves will fall in decay, but every plant will be in perpetual freshness and bloom, full fragrance and beauty, always springing forth, always blossoming and always bearing fruit. Everything in this heavenly world shall contribute to the joy of the saints, and every joy of heaven will be eternal." It's like a fine, fragrant spring day with the flowers and the fruit and the trees. And you know the season is short, but here the season is eternal. Now obviously this imagery that he is using, it comes from the end of the description of this new Jerusalem, the the summary found in verses 1-5 through of chapter 22. And Lord willing, we'll take that up in two weeks' time, but I want to leave you with this hope. There is a world to come. And in this world to come, the biggest difference, it's not going to be geography, it's not going to be who's in charge, it's not going to be our health, and it's not going to be our prosperity. I mean, really, what, what do you lose sleep over? Who is winning an election? How your investments are doing? What your health is? Maybe your health keeps you up at night. But you know what keeps people up more than anything? Is when they when they have done something and they know, I shouldn't have done that. I I've, I've made the bad decision here. I've wronged this other person. The guilt, it keeps us up at night. How we treated another person. Our own sin or the harm caused to somebody else. We are destined for a world that is sinless. And the biggest change in that place, it's not going to be in the planet. It's not going to be in the government. It's going to be in the people. The biggest change will be what God does to you. And when you see it, when you see Him, your joy will be complete. God is changing us to make us like His Son. We have a a blessed hope and a wonderful inheritance to look forward to. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for where You are taking us. Lord, it makes this world look dim, and I pray that it would become less in the hearts of Your people. Lord, it is difficult to express. Just give us a sense of of the life to come. Give us a sense of what you will do so that we will be able to say, with Paul, this life is dung in comparison to knowing Christ. This is rubbish, it's nothing. That we would really believe to live as Christ and to die is gain, not loss. That we would be encouraged in our hearts to press on and not discouraged. The worst in this life, it can't compare. The best in this life, it can't compare. And Lord, when we know what is awaiting us, it makes things in this life seem so easy to endure. And I pray, Lord, that we would, that we wouldn't get bent out of shape when we're offended. But that we would rejoice because of what you are doing in our lives. Thank you, Father. Write this on our hearts, God. In your name we pray, amen.